Movies Till Dawn continue on Channel 5 with Island of Lost Souls. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. The great film director Peter Bogdanovich uh, died on January 6th of this year, uh, which is 2022, and I'm recording this on January 20th. Uh, which means just a few weeks later, and I'm still feeling the pain of it because Peter was a close friend of mine for 20 years. Uh, I'm honored to be able to say that. Uh, He was a a wonderful friend to have, too. He was supportive. He was charming. He was inspirational, and he was also a much misunderstood guy, I think, in, in some circles or maybe in a lot of circles. He had an extraordinary career, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that. You probably know the Last Picture Show and Paper Moon and Mask and What's Up Doc. Uh, and those are just the hits. There's plenty other stuff that he directed. He was also a, a film historian and journalist. And if I'm not mistaken, he was really the first of the American uh, film directors to come from film history. That was more common. Well, so for instance, the, the French New Wave filmmakers, Godard, Truffaut, began as film fans and enthusiasts and writers uh, and turn themselves into filmmakers. That was an unusual thing, though, for an American to do. The The general um, feeling in America was that movie directors were tough guys, and they didn't really care for the movies, but they went out there and got paid, and they knocked them over, and they yelled at actors, and they grinded them out. And that was sort of the kind of BS macho version of what a movie director was. And Peter, Peter kind of upended all that by being an unabashed fan, and writing about it and interviewing filmmakers who he admired so he could learn from them. His essays on actors, uh, which are wonderful, are collected in a book called Who the Hell is in It? And his essays or his interviews with directors are collected in a terrific book called Who the Devil Made It? These are two books that you have to have on your shelf if you're into the movies. So there's a lot of Peter information out there and uh, a lot of recordings and interviews of of Peter. There's a deep uh, dive. It's a podcast that Peter did just a couple years ago with Ben Mankiewicz called I'm Still Peter Bogdanovich. And so, you know, I can't add much to that. You don't need me to add much to that. But I can add something to Peter's legacy that I don't think anyone else can. And that's the fact that Peter was a singer. And an enthusiastic singer, he loved the music of the 1930s and 40s. Uh, And I know this because I was his accompanist. You can find a CD that's out there, you can find it on YouTube actually, called Monday Morning Quarterbacks. And it's Peter singing and it's me playing the piano. So how did this uh, how did this oddity come about? How, how, how what was behind? What's the story behind all that? Well, I'll sketch it in for you a little bit, and then I'm going to play you some audio. I'm not going to play. I'll play you some, you know, excerpts of of the actual CD. But what I'm going to be playing you is a conversation Peter and I had back when we were making the CD, which was when in 2002, I guess. 
Um, basically, here's the beginnings of the story. A very good friend of mine, Tom Hayes, was the son of the legendary uh, magazine editor, Harold Hayes. Esquire magazine was his very important uh, magazine that he edited. And he was the first person to hire Peter as a journalist. He sent him to L.A. Peter was in his early 20s. And that's where Peter first started meeting people like Alfred Hitchcock and John Ford and Cary Grant and Jerry Lewis uh, and Howard Hawks. Uh, and, and so that really began Peter's career. Well, 20 years later, when, when Tom, Harold's son, uh, was about you know, 21, 22 years old, Peter hired him to work as his assistant on his movie, They All Laughed. And another 20 years later, it turned out that both Tom and Peter lived in the same neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And they bumped into each other. And it turns out I lived in the same neighborhood at that time, too. Now, I'm not going to bother to go any further with this story because uh, it's part of this audio that I'm going to play of of me and Peter having this conversation. It it was recorded because uh, Tom decided, thank God, to make an actual kind of record of us making the CD together. Uh, And it exists. It's out there. And uh, it's called Directors Unplugged. I think right now it's not online uh, because Tom's doing some work on it and intends to put it out there more professionally and to a wider audience. But I do have this hour or so of conversation, and uh, you're going to hear it in two parts. Uh, And like I said, I'm going to drop a few excerpts of, uh, of the music in. I think you'll find Peter charming and and dry-witted and, and thoughtful. You're going to find me overbearing. I talk too much. I'm, uh, I love the sound of my own words. I like to think I got better at doing this kind of thing, you know, over, over 20 years. <laughs> I hope I did. Uh, so forgive me for my, my long-windedness. I should have shut up and let Peter speak more. But it's a cool conversation. And like I said, I don't think anyone else has tape like this. So please enjoy part one of my conversation about the American popular songbook and the making of a CD between me and Peter Bogdanovich. We decided to give a party to inaugurate the Steinway. Is that what the party was? Yeah. And when was that? And that, I think, was in July or early August. And that was the first time I met you. Yeah, because Tom invited me. Yeah. Tom, I met Tom at a party that my daughter asked me to come to. And Tom was, I know Tom, and he comes over and he says, you want to come to a party as a piano and you could sing? He knows that I like to sing. I said, really? I said, who's going to play? He says, Raymond DeFelitti, very good pianist. He can play. I said, can he play better than you? He says, yeah. I said, well, then I'm sure he's got to be good then. <laughs> No, I'm making this up. Anyway, can, I said, can he change keys? Yes. Right. So then I came and we were playing and it was fun. And it was, it was funny because the party quickly turned into a kind of an impromptu concert. And everybody, and suddenly, at, and, and, everyone at the party thought that it was something that we had worked up, dreamed up. And they said, oh, we didn't know you knew Peter and that you guys performed together. And I just sort of lied to everyone and said, yes, we've been doing it for years. It's over all the time. <laughs> and then like most good lies, it turned out to be the truth. The truth. Yeah. But I was, it was so much fun. And then Mark Lipsky comes over and says, well, you guys ought to do an album. 
Right. And I told him the name of my doctor. So he had his head, had his head examined. How many people have come into your life and said, I want to produce something with you? And you, right. you don't and even want to hear it. No, they, never, they don't do it. Nobody yeah. does it. And I always say, sure, sure. Do of it. course, do it. And then they run. But Mark did it. To our eternal dismay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, and then we that's played how it started. every, every uh, couple of times a week. We were rehearsing twice a week. And it was sort of interesting to me is that without any real, just by kind of trying songs that each of us liked out on each other, uh, gradually a list sort of developed. And the peculiar thing about the list is it took, I think it took its own shape and it, it kind of has its own theme. They're all songs that are one way or another, I think, good stories. And you helped me tremendously in, in singing it because you said, you know, act it more than sing it. Uh, and acting has to do with, therefore, like you say, has to do with a story and a song that tells a story in which there's a guy that, you, you know, that I could play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes songs dropped out because it didn't seem like me. Yeah, yeah, and sort of a, a persona started to develop, yeah. which was what is... Who are you in this in this uh, yeah. project? That was what did it. That's what we really ended up hot because there were songs that I liked that I thought, oh, I'm surely going to sing this, like Once Upon a Time, mm -hmm. and then somehow it didn't seem to be right. Once we started going, it seemed not sophisticated enough. Right. It sort of became rather New Yorky, since we're both New Yorkers. Yeah. It it did become sort of like, well, this doesn't seem like a New York sort of song. There's a, a wonderful phrase that um, John Lahr uh, used uh, about Sondheim's music, which, of course, we don't do any Sondheim, but I think yeah. of this phrase. We thought of you doing Sondheim. Yeah, and wisely <laughs> ran the other way. But his, his phrase was uh, boulevard nihilism. And whenever I listen Good. to the album, I think, yes, boulevard nihilism. It's so, it's so sophisticated and Pes urbane. Romantic Pes pessimism. Yeah, yeah. We did say at one point, I think, we said, let's do all torch songs mm -hmm. so that, or suicide songs. But then we got hung up defining what a torch song is. Yeah. And I think one thing we found was that a lot of songs that aren't specifically about a lover carrying a torch for a lost love, songs that in fact are reasonably optimistic can still have a sadness to them that is so uh, uh, poignant. Like More Than You Know. Yeah, More Than You Know is... Not really a torch song. It, it appears to be a song about a person who's very happily telling someone uh, how important they are to them. And yet More Than You Know is heartbreaking to me. Yeah, yeah. There's a yearning there's to a, it. There's an implication that maybe one day she will have to remember yeah. that he loved her more than she knew. Yes, and there's a desperation in loving you the way that I do. Yeah. There's nothing I can do about it. It's that sort of very hard... Loving maybe all you can do, yeah. but baby, I can't live without it. Yeah, so she's maybe not perfect, but right. he sure does like her in the sack. Yeah. <laughs> more than you know More than you know Girl of my heart so lately I find you're on my mind more than you know 
Whether you're right, whether you're wrong, girl of my heart, I'll string along. I need you so more than you'd ever know. Loving you. The way that I do, there's nothing I can do about it. Loving may be all you can give, but baby, I can't live without it. Oh, how I'd cry! Oh. If you got tired and said goodbye, more than I'd show, more than you'd ever know. It was interesting. Some songs dropped out. That we thought we'd do. You turn viciously against how long has this been going on? Yeah, isn't that funny? And, and, and you always liked the song. I always liked and it. Then you turned on it because lined up against the other songs <laughs> that we had work. chosen, it felt to me campy yeah. compared to you, I, you know. I think Ira Gershwin is brilliant. Certainly it's a lovely top, song. We may do it sometime. Yeah, and and we and we had a good rendition worked up of it, it was and yet okay. it, it didn't work. It's it, it, it wasn't how certain things dropped out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It it. Um, I also think that again, if the song didn't have an integrity or or a, a clear intent as to as you were saying your character, uh, and then some songs took a little bit of convincing. Like I think of, I mean, I love Deep in a Dream. I wasn't sure about that. One. Yeah, and I think it took combining it with. That old feeling. Yeah, that was a great idea. To make a story out you of it. You said, really. let's do a medley. Yeah, and, and now that tells a story. Yeah. Um, I, I also remember, what was the song that we dropped? Because we started noting that there were certain characteristics of the, the singer, the narrator's voice in the song that we didn't like. Oh, he's self-pitying. And... Uh, why try to change me now? Yeah, yeah. A, a terrific song. It's a and good then... song. Sinatra does it great. That was the other thing, of course. We did say, you know, we can't do this. It's Sinatra owns this song. Right. Every song in the album, I think, was sung by Sinatra. But then, of course, Sinatra sang every good song ever written. Right. The distinction is always to find out, is it a song that he sang or is it a song that he owned? Yeah, you, you made that distinction. You said, he doesn't own this song. He yeah. did do it. He does it better than anybody. But he doesn't own it. Like, you can't do I've Got You Under My Skin. For example, right. Why didn't we do? Where are you? In your opinion, I have a, I have a theory. Where are you? I don't know. I think what did we think it was too sappy or something? The bridge we, is tough. Yeah, the bridge is tough. I I think it's it's certainly one of my favorite songs. But I came to realize that it's a song he owns because when you get to the end of Where Are You. If you don't modulate up for all, da, 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 all da, night through, yeah, 
I'm which is what he does. Well, he modulates up for that. If you, you don't do it, there's something essential missing from the song. It's not where are you without it, which means you have to hear, you have to do it just like Frank does it, which means yeah. impossible. Maybe that's why we dropped it. But the, the but singing it a few times, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't think I was that hot singing it. Either. I, I think though that it's interesting because whereas that's a song that you really can't hear without thinking of him, to me, my favorite piece that we did, which I never thought of doing, which you introduced me to, is Monday Morning Quarterback, a song that I think maybe only he has recorded, yeah. and yet I think we gave it a, a whole other flavor. Well, he did it with a big band, and he did it more operatically, and we did it very intimate. Mm -hmm. And it was one of his last recordings. It was on the She Shot Me Down. Mm -hmm. I like the way he does it, but we did it, we did, we did it quite differently. I know there were a hundred ways to tell her I loved her. It's funny how they're all so clear today. And when her face was burning with sadness and yearning, I don't know why I turned away but it's so easy looking at the game the morning after adding up the kisses and the laughter knowing how you'd play it if the chance to play it over ever came but then a Monday morning quarterback never lost a game also funny about Monday morning quarterback I always felt good about I always felt that felt the, the emotion of that song it's a real torch song in the sense that it's not really a torch song about one person. It's it's sort of like just generally screwing things up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a life torch song. It's a life torch song. You <laughs> always screw it up. Why did I do that? Why didn't I say this? Yeah. And then you took to it immediately. I mean, you loved it and you played it beautifully right away. And you liked it right away. Mm -hmm. That was encouraging. I think, you know, I, I couldn't have done this without you because not, not just because you played the piano so well, but... Also, because you were being a director, you directed me, and that was, you know, a number of places where it was tough to sing the song. You said things like, you know, don't sing it so much, or why don't you speak that line? Well, what's my, you know, the the easiest piece of direction to give is less, you know. Yeah, but it's you know, it's, you have to say it a certain way, where the guy gets up and punches you. Right. What do you mean less? <laughs> You don't like what I'm doing. You don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> the other great thing about this for me was in discovering the joy of doing it and not in not doing it in a too professional environment. It was you and I in a relaxed environment, just having a nice. It was time fun. We were both songs. we were both having difficult summers for different reasons, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and we'd come together and we could forget about whatever the, the outside world was about and we could just be sad <laughs> playing the music having being happy playing sad music yeah 
Yeah, and, and for me, most of these songs, all of the songs, uh, to me, are, uh, uh, they, they transport me to a, it's another world that this music comes from. It's a, a world where you can, <clears throat> you can say things like, uh, loving you the way that I do, you know, it, it, it's a, the, the, the style that people fought in and lived in is echoed in the popular music of the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, that old feeling to me is a song that is so evocative of, of that period, 1938. That's the way people talked and felt and spoke. That was the music of that you heard on the street. Yeah. It was uh, it was I suppose the <clears throat> equivalent of Eminem. God, unbelievable. Think of <laughs> well, it's unbelievable to realize how much the world has changed. Yeah. When you t t listen to the music of that of that moment of the twenties, thirties, forties, even some of the fifties, sort of started to fall apart in the fifties. But I don't know if we have any fifties songs in there. Let's see. Well, certainly the newest is Monday Morning Quarterback, which is from the eighty-one. Yeah, but that's by that's a huge leap. I think most of them are what thirty. The thirties songs, yeah, yeah, for the most part. I get along without you very well. I think is even late twenties, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know when he wrote that. It's Hoagie Carmichael. We have two Hoagie Carmichael songs. Yes, we have that and, and Georgia on and Georgia on my mind. Wanted, of course, which you suggested we do, and it works. I love the way uh, Georgia worked out too. It was—it's one of those songs that's been done so much, uh, and is associated, I suppose, largely with Ray Charles and you know, and, and that recording. I used it in Paper Moon. That's right, with that, Hoagie Carmichael's recording of it. Right, and yet it's a song that, even though it's been used so much, when you reduce it to just its basic. It's words and music. It's so plaintive and it's a great song. Lovely, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, for it, it's lived long enough to outlive its own cliche. Yeah, that's value. nineteen thirty. That one. Yeah, but you're right that it was partially the fun of it was going into that era that is really vanished. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Except with small oases uh, where we, you know, where people like us. Um, play that sort of music, but you don't hear it much. Yeah. Linda Ronstadt occasionally comes out and does, <clears throat> you know, somebody like Linda Ronstadt decides to do a oldies song album, but... Or now there are these, uh, uh, you know, there's this woman, Stacey Kent, who's very good, and, uh, you know, and, and even that seems to uh, pose a problem for for new performers doing old music, everyone wants them to be saying something new with, doing, the old music. with the old music, and to which I think, what more can you say except what the songs represent, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I think the thing you said earlier is a very important point, which is the idea that you're telling a story. Because I once asked Sinatra about it, and he said, you know, each song is a little story with one character telling the story. Mm -hmm. He was a, such a great actor of songs too. I mean, that was really what he did. Except he could sing. Uh, when did you know Sinatra? Well, I knew him. I met him in seventy, in the mid seventies. So I knew him really, sort of, to talk to him between, so say, seventy five and eighty six. So that was sort of a, that was sort of his post <clears throat> retirement comeback. Yeah, it was that period? Yeah. And and more importantly, what was he drinking when he said that? Jack Daniels, yeah, I think, probably. 
<laughs> Didn't he drink that all the time? I saw him perform a few times, uh, you know, in London and in L.A. and in New York. And uh, he was a great actor of the material. He did act the material brilliantly. Yeah. You know, he had a kind of a extraordinary panache when he acted the song. Whereas, whereas Dino, who we, who we reference yeah. in, in one uh, yeah. unforgivable cut, yes, was, bonus, was the, the bonus precise cut. opposite. Yeah, he, well, he, he, Dean he threw no, them all away. He yeah. had no interest in convincing you that he meant any of it. Right, right. <laughs> and was equally you know, successful somehow. At the, yeah. If not, if not held in the esteem as a musician, still beloved by yeah. people who love that music. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. There's never a never a sincere moment. Hardly. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry Lewis sounds more sincere when he just sings. When he right. Yeah. yeah it's true. We did that. We did that song. Uh, that Martin Lewis thing was. Um, I don't know how that happened. Well, you made the 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 mistake of coming over and one day Martin and doing Lewis. Dino when I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Yeah, that's right. And and I, I recall I said, that's a scary Dino. <laughs> that was too close to him being in the room. Oh, anyway, it was fun to do that. Dino goes, Jerry follows. Yeah. Sweet expression, the smile you gave me, the way you looked when we met. It's easy to remember, but so hard to forget. I hear you whisper, I'll always love you. I know it's over And yet It's easy to remember It's so hard to forget So I must dream To have your hand caress me Fingers press me tight I'd rather dream than have that lonely feeling stealing through the night. Each little moment is clear before me, and though it brings me regret, it's easy to remember. It's so hard to forget
so I must dream to have your hand caress me, fingers press me tight. I'd rather dream than have that lonely feeling stealing through the night. Each little moment is clear before me. And though it brings me regret, oh, oh, it's easy to remember, but so hard to forget. We should do more of this, maybe you and me together, both, huh? Luckily, I could. I've been, I've been doing Martin and Lewis since I was about 13. What was the thing you told me you made a tape? Uh, you used to do them together when you were a kid. I well, they ha they did a radio show once. Mm -hmm. They did a radio show for a few seasons, maybe in the late in the early fifties, and I recorded one of their radio shows. And then they had a routine. Little man, you're crying. I'm only three years old. I'm entitled. <laughs> I know why you're blue. They sang in my talcum powder. You know that one. <laughs> Someone took your kitty car away. It was mother. She's hated me for years. <laughs> that, that was, they did that. And I recorded that, and then I did it, you know, in school for everybody. I don't remember all of it. Come along, there, soldier. Take your filthy hands off me. <laughs> Put away your gun. Just one shot at mother. <laughs> the war is over for tonight. That's what you think. I said a time bomb under Herbie's crib. <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> 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 I always thought that the uh, first time, I think we, we talked about this once, the first films in a way that I ever made were tape recordings. I learned that you could cut and change things around did you? on tape. Did I did you? that too. Yeah. That, that was the for when I was maybe but, just seven or eight. Well, years I was old, a kid. I, yeah, I did the same thing with uh, with dramatic radio things, but I didn't know you could cut. Well, I thought re you rewind and press. Yeah, yeah, again. Well, yeah, yeah, right. That's yeah. what I did. Yeah, yeah, rewind and press start again. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I always. I used I, to screw up so bad, and there was no way to fix it, so I had just scotch tape, and I'd tape it together, and it would go, you know, right. it would make you hear the cut. Well, what the hell? Isn't that a funny? Yeah, I, and I think now that obviously now that cameras are nothing to people, it's you know. But but even you know when I was a kid, it, that I now realize those were the first. Me too. My first movies were made on audio tape. That's yeah. interesting. I did it too. I I actually taped an old suspense. You're too young to remember that radio show. Sure, I know. But... Suspense. Autolite presents. Mm -hmm. You know. I taped an old suspense show and then transcribed the whole thing and then played all the parts and my own new music and sound effects and everything, create, you know. And uh, that was the first thing I ever did. Uh, did was on this was that. It was Richard Widmark in Mate Bram. But then you played the parts. Or all you? the parts. Great. I played all the parts. And could you do Widmark? No, I didn't do Widmark. I did. <laughs> I did. You know, I did me. Right. I played the hero in my own right. voice. And there was a captain, you know, and there was the girl. I don't know if I can do, you know, <laughs> all the voices. And I did all the sound effects with my, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, which is probably how they did them too. Probably. Yeah. And then I had, and I chose rather 
somewhat better music. I mean, I had Stravinsky, you know, and Mussorgsky music mm-hmm. from my from my stuff. But that was the first thing I ever did too. That's weird. I didn't know that. You didn't yeah. tell me that before. Yeah, I must think that it's. Um, and then I was. I remember reading uh, something in your Wells book where he talks about how having worked in radio gave him a sense of how important the flow of the sound of the scene is. Um, yeah. And I can, I can tell that in his work, and I can uh-huh. tell it in yours, too, that it has a great deal to do with the sound of it. Is it sounding right? And that it'll, you know... Yeah, you know, Orson said, if it sounds right, it'll probably look right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that one time when I was, when I was shooting, and I looked away, and suddenly I heard a silence that I didn't want to hear. Quickly looked right. back and realized the actor forgot his lines. Yeah. Yeah. And one time I was so concerned on a picture with the camera move. That the camera move would work, that I actually was watching the camera and didn't pay any attention to the actors. And when it was over, they said, do you want to print that? And I couldn't, I hadn't realized I hadn't watched it. Right. And then I remembered what Orson had said, and I thought, well, I heard it, though, and it sounded all right. Yes, print it. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, you can visit my blog where I post videos related to the subjects that I interview. Just go to moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. You can find this podcast at moviestilldawnpodcast.com, but we're also available on most of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and YouTube. I would love to hear from you. If you're inspired to reach out, you can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. And if you have a film geek in your life, or even just a mildly curious fan, spread the word that we're here.